Live from the 607 is the ODPH Entertainment Edition, where we're talking movies, comics, TV, and more. Why don't you join in the conversation? Hashtag ODPH, because here we go. Welcome to another edition of the Ocho Duro Parlay Hour podcast. I am your host, Kenem. Joining me in studio, as always, it's Padawan J. Hello, hello, hello. Folks, we have a lot to discuss in the land of entertainment, so let's waste no more time, shall we? Hit us up on our social media accounts. You can find them at OchoDuroParlayHour.com. Hit us up with the hashtag ODPH. Join in the conversation, because we want to hear from you. It's been kind of a quieter week in the land of entertainment, but still some noteworthy discussion we're going to have. And let's kick it off by recapping the latest Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Mm-hmm. Now, going into the post-Avengers summer, a lot of you know Marvel has been kind of quiet. They're waiting for San Diego Comic-Con. Absolutely. So everything has just been kind of you know building for something. And Agents is finally getting their payoff as they do their slow burn going into mm-hmm. their season six. I don't know if it's going to be the partial season, but it's a short season regardless. So we are going to be talking spoilers so in three, two, one, Pad, what did you think of the episode? Love the episode, Roller Coaster of Emotions. Absolutely. They decided to tug at the heartstrings of anybody who has followed the romance of Fitz and Simmons throughout the years. I mean, and not just that. I mean, just if you watched, if you haven't watched the show all the way through, like you jumped on and jumped off a couple of seasons. I mean, if you have a heart, you, you felt some emotions. Right, because this definitely hit every loyal fan or even some new fans that just have jumped on in recent seasons. Definitely in their emotions with this one because this was such a, a well-done episode. Because mm-hmm. as they did the recap, Enoch has sold out Fitz to the Chronicoms, and he's been finally reunited with Simmons, who sacrificed herself to have Team Quake escape. Mm-hmm. So now they're finally reunited. The payoff is finally there. And as we kick off in the episode, Atara is explaining how the home planet of the Chronicoms was destroyed. Yep. And Simmons now has a very awkward moment with Fitz. Yeah, just a bit. Because she has to explain their time travel to the future. And Fitz, obviously, is very unaware of everything that has been going on. Right, because as Fitz knew it, she she, she being uh, Simmons... And the whole agent's team had gone into the future, and he was trying to get to him, and obviously he got pulled out of it. And up to this point, so like he doesn't know she's still a lot, like she's around and trying to find him. So there's a lot of catching up they got to do, and not all of it she wants to tell him. No, because this is coming off the heels of Fitz proposing, which yeah we saw last season mm-hmm. prior to Fitz's intimate death. Yeah. Asterix because comics. Which admittedly I forgot about that. Because yes. like I was when I'm watching the episode and he's proposing to her, I'm like, she's really nonchalant about this. Why is that? And then they go you get later in the episode, I'm like, oh wait, that's right. She's been through this once already. Right. When Fitz made his dramatic entrance to save the team last season, he did it right then and there. And obviously the emotions for Simmons is torn at this point. I, mm-hmm. I think that's probably the easiest way to describe it. Yeah. Because obviously she says yes, and then they're recapping about how they were looking for each other, and F- Simmons is dodging talking about the, mm-hmm. the future slash past. I mean, however you want to define it. Yeah. But the moment of time when Fitz is in the future and what happens after that, she is really trying to avoid. Now, it's not for the sense of disrupting the timeline, which I was thinking that was. Right. But it was just more of the sense of she doesn't want to go through those emotions and what impact this is going to have on him. I See, I, I think it might have partially been she didn't want to disrupt the timeline, but I feel like it was also at the same time, like, she could have gotten away with it. Like, it's nothing major that, like, I know there's a comedy video going around on online of, you know, Captain America's life once he returned back in time and, and like, how he's living through all the major events in world history, you know, from, like, the 1950s up through modern times. And it's, like, every time a major incident comes up and, like, Peggy Carter asks him, oh, what, you know, what do you think is going to happen with this? And he goes, hmm, 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 hmm. he starts, like, eating food or something. Like, something like that. Okay, you got to be careful, not with the timeline. This, though, I feel like it's a pretty safe bet to, like, all right, you can know nothing's really going to happen because it's already changed. In theory, see, this is where time travel always gets weird. And especially... For Marvel right now, because obviously with what happened with Endgame, and mm-hmm. if you haven't seen Endgame by now, it's getting re-released to theaters this weekend, so definitely get down there, but we in are every, talking spoilers. In every country. Yeah, well, we're talking spoilers with that, because what happens when the Avengers mess with the time stream, 
there are some loopholes that possibly have reset mm-hmm. some instances. Mm-hmm. Loki is running loose and potentially, his, and, yeah, potentially in his time period. Captain America going back in time. That's a big question mark. What happened there? Mm-hmm. So obviously Simmons doesn't know anything about this, right? But she does know that telling Fitz about what happens could have a direct impact on their future, especially mm-hmm. now that she knows she is a grandparent with Deke. Yep. So who knows what's going to happen there? Mm-hmm. But as she's trying to really avoid telling him about the future, this is where the episode takes a quick turn, dare I say. Yeah. Because suddenly, as they're in their alien prison, which they're allowed their you know heart's desire concerning science and whatever technology it is to tell Atara how to re- go back in time, at this point, she says, if you escape, you're going to be trapped in your mind. Mm-hmm. And during this whole argument with uh, Fitz, Simmons reverts back to baby Gemma. Well, and before or the, kid Gemma, kid I should Gemma. Say, and before this, aren't they told that like your minds and memories are linked? And Gemma is like red alarms going off in her head, like wait, 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 wait. Are we sure this is a good idea? Because obviously she's keeping some secrets from Fitz, and she doesn't want him to know. Right. So at this point, this is where the episode really picks up. This, this was brilliant. This well, was it, this was brilliantly done. I have to agree with you on that, Pad. Because now child Gemma yeah. escapes into her own memories mm-hmm. and winds up back in her bedroom. Childhood home, yeah. Childhood home. And where Fitz comes in and he's kind of going like, okay, what's going on here? And this is where we see the linked memories match up. So mm-hmm. Fitz is finding out some somewhat secrets of yeah. Simmons' past. Yeah. And then he also kind of reverts into having an argument because once he gets Simmons to revert back after he kind of talks her into leaving that memory, mm-hmm. they start having a super argument. Yeah. And when Fitz threatens, do you want me to bring Ada out? I'm paraphrasing. Yeah. And Ada, as yeah. in the LMD who yeah. really killed the team in season four, which was amazing. Mm-hmm. Simmons decides to go, okay, hold my beer, so to speak. Yeah. And decides to show him the moment where the team finds Fitz in his body bag. You want to know what happened? Here you go. Exactly. And this is where Fitz sees himself and seeing how the team reacts as he's inside the body bag. And then when he sees a dying Coulson uh-huh. emerge from his bed to see you know Coulson come and check and see what happened, this is where the episode really hits you in the, in the mm-hmm. gut. This is where it was just like, oh. It was like every sequence that happened was just like a knife twist in your gut. Like, if, you know, you get the first initial stab, and it's like, oh, that's rough. And then it's just each following sequence is just more rough. Yeah, and especially if you know how the team interacts. And if you've been watching since day one like we have, this is a super payoff for, like, a long-term fan. Mm-hmm. It, and it's, like I said, if you have joined during season four, which I highly recommend, that's your starting point if you need to jump in. Season four, season five, you definitely get that emotional impact out of the scene. Because as Coulson is dying and he's checking on Fitz and it's the death scene and Fitz is reacting to knowing that he dies. Mm-hmm. And I mean, how much of a just a mind-blowing yeah. moment is that? That you know that you don't make it after all the work that you've been doing, trying to freeze yourself, going to the future, yeah. Yeah. the whole nine with that, that it's almost all for nothing. Mm-hmm. Almost. Because he doesn't know that he saves the team and then inadvertently right. saves yeah, the yeah, world yeah, yeah. in X, Y, and Z. So at this moment, it's just one of the best acted scenes they've done where he just knows and this is just where every part of emotion hits Mm -hmm. and then suddenly they just revert to their early school days at the shield academy and where they first meet each other but this is where things get very interesting too like i said when they start going into the memories it's a it's really where the episode finds it's you know dare i say meat of the episode the real yeah the real impactful parts this is where simmons starts hearing something like a knocking or marching. Yep. And she is the only one that realizes that the mainframe is coming. Oh boy. Or the framework rather. Yeah. And it's Leopold. It's like a, it's like a rash just won't go away. No, but this was, if you've seen season four, when you meet Leopold, Mm -hmm. arguably one of the best villains they've had on the show. Oh yeah. No, I mean, Leopold showed up and uh, and I uttered, oh, son of a, well, you can fill in the blank. Right, because once you see him appear on screen, yeah. you're going, okay, this episode has just taken a turn up to 11, mm-hmm. which was brilliant because you s- somehow forget during all this time travel that, yeah, Leopold is still in there, which is, if you're not familiar with the show, and if I'll say a minor spoiler, 
It is a side of Fitz that is definitely the complete opposite of Fitz. I'll say it's kind of like when uh, Superman is exposed to red kryptonite and he like the worst of him gets brought out. It's kind of the same thing. Right. So when Leopold is coming, Simmons is reliving the nightmare and she goes back to her childhood room. And then you hear a musical box fall off the desk. Now, Fitz is kind of looking at the situation as they're running together and going, what is the importance of this? Because Simmons is starting to act very odd. And at this point, it's suddenly they shift after the box is open, and they wind up back at the shield base. Mm-hmm. And Fitz is, at this point, the episode is jumping so much. Fitz is, and like most of the viewers are going, okay, yeah. wait, wait, what's going on? And like, yeah. hold up and recapping because he's like, okay, we're running from the framework. We're running from everybody. We wind up at shield, which is the most obvious place that they'll come and find us, which is so interesting to see how it does. And then once we flip again to the first day Fitz and Simmons meet Coulson, which is a nice little memory, suddenly it jumps back to where Leopold finally catches Simmons. Mm -hmm. Well, Fitz is now running from a creature that was unleashed from said music box, which looks like it was straight out of the movie The Ring. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it's a, mix, was, it's a mix of Simmons and the Ring. Which is just like a combination I really didn't need in my life, but thanks anyway. Yeah, which was such a very unique perspective to do because it's where Simmons was explaining during the, the child room scene that this is where she used to put the monsters to hide and you almost mm-hmm. keep it like a Pandora's box, which was interesting for a play at the time. But now her worst nightmares have now been unleashed. And when you have a demon Simmons, which is just weird to say. Yeah now running through and trying to kill everybody. This is where the episode is going definitely off the rails a little bit. I mean, we've been seeing that for a couple episodes now. Don't forget, there was the one episode that was like half of it was like from a Ridley Scott alien movie. Right. And they definitely do borrow from a lot of pop culture and geek culture, so to speak, when they're doing their, dare I say, when they step outside the box Mm -hmm. to do some certain episodes. This was no exception. And at this point, too, you see Enoch with Atara and really trying Enoch's trying to talk him out of like keeping him in prison like this and he's just very worried about Fitz because at the end of the day you know Enoch is actually genuinely caring for him yeah and what he does is he takes a very big gamble and he takes out everybody trying to free them and it doesn't exactly go the way he wants he tries saving him but he just doesn't because at this point Leopold and do we just call her ring Gemma sure have finally captured everybody involved and they're torturing everybody where you see Leopold is having a very awkward conversation with Simmons, very mm-hmm. very cold and disturbing, which I completely love how Ian DeCastucker flips between Leopold and Fitz. Yeah, it's it's a great acting part on acting job on his part too, because like they're two very much two separate different characters. Where you know Fitz is the team player and the and sort of a romantic when it comes to Simmons, but you know he'll do what needs to get done and he'll you know lay his life on the line for the sacrifice, but like. Leopold is like, yeah, uh, screw you. I'm going to do what I need to, and I don't care who I run over if I have to do it. Right. And at this point, you see that Ring Gemma is absolutely torturing Fitz. And at one point, it does rip his heart out. Yeah, that was that was something. Yeah, which is a interpretation of how Simmons does react when they have their fights. Because the one thing from this episode is you see their ups and you see their downs, and you see where they're knocked down, drag out fights, but you see how they come together because they're in love with each other, mm-hmm. and how they just find a way to make it happen. It's also it's their mantra of it's us against the universe. Yeah, and they take everybody until they both finally realize, well, if this is our our memories. Well, we do have allies we can call in. Yeah, I would say it's, it's like when you're in a dream and, and yeah, every once in a while you may experience a lucid dream where you're like you're able to control things. It's almost the same thing where it's like, oh, yeah, we're getting put through, you know, hell and high water just for this. Oh, wait, this is our memories. We can control this to a certain degree. And at that point, they call in the cavalry. Uh-huh. Not literally because they did not call in Agent May, but they did call Mac and they did call Quaken, uh-huh. which definitely shout out to Mac for bringing back the shotgun axe. Yes. Which is such a. Oh, amazing weapon. Top five Marvel weapon. Don't even try convincing me otherwise. Exactly. You can add us on OD Parlay Hour if you want on Twitter, but the shotgun axe is so good. Mm-hmm. And as you see him taking care of Ring Gemma, you see that Quake shows up and starts fighting with Leopold. And definitely the backup is there, and it's just a really cool moment where they go and they save each other. And then they find themselves trapped in the containment unit that they've trapped um, multiple characters on throughout the years. And Fitz and Simmons just are having it out. On the outside, you see Leopold and Ring Gemma are fighting. They're just trying to get in, and 
and then they're seeing that, well, our memories are getting destroyed because they're taking both of them out. And this is where they have such a, I, the way, the only way I could describe it is it's an awkward married exchange. Yeah. Because they start going through every single moment throughout their history where there's been bad. And we're mm-hmm. talking about when Simmons wound up on the alien planet by herself. Yeah. And that whole messy situation that ultimately led to a member of Hive, or no, I believe it was the character Hive, yeah. coming to Earth and you know going with the Team Hydra there and, and the Secret Warriors saga and, and that whole nonsense. And then obviously Ada comes back up in that conversation too. And this is where you, it's just, it's a great moment, but it's just such a, it's a married couple moment. Yeah, it's like, the, you know, you're angry at each other and the filter you would normally have where you wouldn't say certain things and only keep them in your head is pulled away and just every wrong thing you would step, wouldn't want to normally say is coming out. Right. So at this point, too, they somehow flip it on Leopold and Ring Gemma, which that has to be one of the, I, I guess I would say this was kind of a letdown for me that they wind up hooking up and are having a weird exchange on that yeah, aspect. Yep, just, yeah. just considering how the episode was because there were such like real threats mm-hmm. and it just went super humorous out of nowhere, which I get I'm not angry about, but I was like, oh, come on. I, I wanted something else to happen here other than just ring Gemma is just eating everybody and then she disappears because once they find out the key to getting through, which was just, you know, combining their minds into just the unstoppable force, so to speak, Enoch frees them. Mm-hmm. He somehow gets a hold of taking everybody out of the Chronicoms and frees them and then they make their escape. And at this point, too, Simmons decides to drop the ball of, oh, your grandfather fits. Yeah. And fade to black. <laughs> yeah. Which, great timing for that. Ab- yeah, absolute great timing. And then when they come back for the bonus scene, too, Mac is relieved to hear from Quake about Fitzsimmons are still together, and he's like, I'm not worried about them. Those two will take on the universe and win, so mm-hmm. we're good. We have more pressing issues happening. He is now debriefing Quake about Sarge. Yeah. And he drops the bombshell that Sarge is the one who destroyed the Chronicom planet. Mm-hmm. So overall... Solid episode. Yeah. If you're a Fitzsimmons fan, you definitely got more out of this than not. So you were over the moon. Yeah, Pat. Final thoughts on the episode? A great episode. Lots of Fitzsimmons action, which I'm always a fan of. You know, it was great to finally see them together. It was also great to see so many callbacks to previous seasons and kind of, a, like you said, a little bit of a payoff. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Liz Hasridge did a great job with this episode, too. And obviously, going through her memories of the character of Gemma Simmons, you definitely see where her acting skills are just superb. And you can go back to that episode that she was on the planet by herself. You really want to see her best mm-hmm. work on this, on the show. I mean, how that, how she did not get nominated for an Emmy for that episode. Yeah. Just that episode alone was mind blowing to me, but I digress. But to see the saga Fitzsimmons now take their next step and whatever's going to happen with them in the future, because they're light years away. We don't know what's going to happen if Fitz comes back to Earth. What does that do to reset the timeline? Because you know something's going to happen. A lot more questions were answered, but a lot more were raised. But overall, great episode. Definitely liking to see where they're going because the mid-season finale or season finale, I don't know how you want to define it. It's 13 episodes for this season. Right. However you want to define that 13th episode is coming very quickly. So we're going to kind of have to jump in on that and see how the saga of Coulson slash Sarge and company plays out. But definitely let us know what you think. Hit us up on that hashtag, hashtag ODPH. What is your thoughts on this past week's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D.? We want to know. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Hey, this is Rob Kacharek from the band 607, Autopilot Off, and Walking Distance, and you're listening to ODPH. Coming back for another segment on this edition of the ODPH podcast. Now, as we said, it's been kind of a quiet week with Marvel and, mm-hmm. and most of the movies because next week, obviously, they're gearing up for Spider-Man Far From Home. Yep. We're going to get into that next segment. But this week is very important for comic book movie history. Yes. Why is that, Pat? Uh, it is the 30th anniversary of Tim Burton's Batman movie coming out in theaters. Exactly. This movie, when it came out, sorry, Michael Keaton as Bruce Wayne, Jack Nicholson was the Joker. Tim Burton definitely took a very unique version of Gotham City to the big screen. And to know the history of this movie is truly phenomenal because at the time, there really wasn't the current, dare I say, comic book surplus no. movies no. You know, that we have, that we just have so many of them out. Because the only time at this point was more or less the Christopher Reeves Supermans. Which hadn't happened in a while. 
No, it didn't happen for a while, and obviously at this point, too, is right right around when they had uh, Superman The Quest for Peace, which right. was arguably the worst one of the bunch. So for when Batman came out into movie theaters, at this time, it was really almost unheard of that right. you had a superhero movie come out. Because I know the Adam West super, or Batman universe, right, right, right. they had their own quote-unquote movie, and you just really never heard anything about this. So when you heard about the Tim Burton version coming out, out of nowhere this was a big deal yeah and the marketing for this the bat logo was everywhere <laughs> at that time it was you could not escape it no so when this movie came out and now pad you've seen this movie yes i've seen this movie what was your initial take on this uh, i thought it was a very interesting take because you look at prior to that and obviously there had been some tv shows and other type of stuff with various superheroes but particularly with the movies you look at like the most recent thing there had been in the Superman movies and it listen as much as I am a Superman fan, there are parts of those movies that are a little hokey. Like, yes, I get there's the seventies and there's the eighties, but you know, we're going to undo time and undo what happened wrong by flying backwards and re and, you know, recorrect the earth's rotation and then put it everything, you know, yeah, it's a little hokey, but when you look at the Batman movie, it's, it's so, you know, no pun intended. It's so night and day. Mm -hmm. compared to what you're used to seeing with the Superman stuff. So you might have gone into there thinking, all right, what are we going to get out of this? Is this going to be like something somewhat serious or is this going to be more hokey? No, I definitely thought when Tim Burton took this over, I really wasn't sure what to expect, except I thought it was going to be kind of more on the darker side. And it was not going to be like the Superman movies that we had known from Christopher Reeve. This was going to be something that when it hit the screen, who knows what we're going to get. Yeah. And the version we got, was very unique, to say the least. Uh -huh. Michael Keaton as Bruce Wayne was definitely an interesting take on the character because the one thing that Keaton did is he really showed how psychologically fragile Batman is. And I thought that was very interesting to see the, the sense that he wasn't, he changed his voice, he did little nuances here and there, but he definitely showed that just the character of Bruce Wayne, so to speak, is still no matter how old he is, still dealing with the trauma of losing his parents and how he did uh -huh. and what caused that. I mean, obviously, they stayed away from the majority of the comic origin of Batman. Right. They didn't go near Ra's al Ghul or anything like right. that. It was just, you know his parents got killed, and obviously they just fast forward to when Batman is starting out and he runs into Jack Napier, who's a criminal, you know, I don't want to say mastermind by any means, right. but, you know, they're pulling off the heist at Ace yeah. Chemicals. Yeah. And, you know, look what happens, and he winds up causing the Joker and Jack Nicholson's portrayal. At the time, you really had never seen such a, I don't want to say disturbing version of yeah. the Joker, but for that time period, you had never seen a take like that. Oh, so you got to remember the last time a lot of people had seen any live-action portrayal of the Joker was, like you said, the Adam West Batman TV series, and that was Cesar Romero. Right. Who had, I mean, that whole show was great for its time. Yeah. Very campy, very fun, very, yeah. you know, over-the-top yeah. With a lot of their things. Yeah. And it worked. Not saying that that version's bad by any means. But when you deal with this one in the 80s, too, because at this point, this is where DC, in my opinion, was kind of starting to write more grittier heroes, yeah. grittier stories. Yeah. You, you start seeing, you know, the change of the typical, you know, superhero storyline. I mean, this is right around the time when Watchmen's around. Mm -hmm. Give take. So at this point, this is where it really jumps out and you really start seeing the change of characters and the change of guard and to see Keaton's portrayal. Like I said, it did show a definitive change from what we knew from Batman. Yeah. And like I said, his, his version of Batman is very good. Like for me, I'm a Christian Bale fan. And right. for that, like for me, that's my Batman. Yeah. But I don't knock him when somebody says, I think Keaton's better because you know what? It's up there. It definitively is. And to just go through his emotions too. Cause I mean, even at the one point, which I'm sorry, we're going to be talking spoilers. The movie's been out for 30 years. So yeah, yeah. Just giving fair warning now. When he has that little standoff with the Joker, and he's like, yeah, let's get nuts. Let's get crazy. Mm -hmm. And like you kind of see, like, Batman doesn't usually do that. No. So to see him just react and just kind of let his emotions out, you really kind of get the sense of it was just something very, very different and something we had not seen because – as we've seen later portrayals throughout the years, I mean, obviously Keaton did it for two films, and then it went to Val Kilmer for one, George Clooney for another, not even addressing those, and then to see Christian Bale do it, and then more recently Ben Affleck. You've seen every character that's or every actor that's played Batman mm -hmm. really do something different. Before. Okay, Ke can't uh, forget to mention Kevin Conroy. 
Well, that's true, which is a whole different animal in its own oh, right. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. but he definitely deserves to be in that conversation for who's the best Batman. Yeah. Without question. So when you start factoring that in, this is where Batman really st- stood out because Keaton works so well with Tim Burton, too. Yeah. That this is just something that it really stood out and really was, you know, a, just a different version. I mean, the soundtrack to this was just, it made everything just sound that much more, you know, grander and just more serious and just the tone was so different. And then to flip it too with Nicholson's portrayal of the Joker. I mean, you didn't see this on screen anywhere else where he was very cold but very still unpredictable, which is the Joker to the letter. I mean, mm-hmm. this is where it comes out. I mean, when you start thinking of the Joker, what would you describe his portrayal as? It just unpredictable like you never like no matter what version you see of him be it you know you know uh more most recently with uh jared leto or even with uh you know in in the christian bale movies or even in even in this movie like we're talking or even in the batman and the animated series you never know what the guy's gonna do you think you've got it figured and you you know the old school we do oh i know who the what the bad guy's gonna do i know how to stop him but then you know he throws in a wild card or you know a, a, a hook in the plan and it just goes completely the other way. Right. This is where Nicholson really defined the Joker. And in, in my opinion, this is where the Joker's popularity really took off. Yeah. Because he'd always been the Batman's number one villain. And I, and I don't ever question that. He is the number one. But when Nicholson portrayed the Joker, he took that character and rose it to a whole different level of pop culture. Right. Because you got to remember, like before with Cesar Romero, okay, people like Cesar Romero's portrayal of the, of the Joker, but it was kind of like goofy slapstick. Ha ha, you know, I'm, I'm going to throw a water balloon at you and then run off screen. Whereas you look at Jack Nicholson's portrayal and just like, all right, what's this guy, what's this crazy guy going to do next? Right. Because, I mean, he's just so very common in his, in his, you know, maniac style. Too, which was the real funny thing to me. I mean, no pun intended because of the right, Joker. Right, right. But like, even when you get to that point where he's seeing Batman escape, and he's like, where do you get one, all those wonderful toys? And just lines like that, which, I mean, they didn't have to be over the top for shock value. No, no. Just so calm and cool, but yet at the point, so absolutely crazy that you would think, okay, this villain at the time, is he's worried about what he's mm-hmm. you know escaping with. Like I said, it was just such a nice counterbalance to Keaton's acting on this. Yeah that it just really stood out. Because like I said, and I've read a couple other reviews too, and they say the same thing too, when you see Keaton's portrayal, just how psychologically damaged he is. And everybody keeps referencing too about the point where he just finally breaks down and you see him get on that level, so to speak, right. with the Joker. When he's like, yeah, let's get nuts. Let's get... And he's like, you don't see that from Batman ever. You never no. really saw that from Bruce Wayne. No. You've always seen him be the guy that's in control. And this is where you really see the Joker push him to the limit. Mm-hmm. Because if you can get Batman to go to that level with the Joker where he's almost accepting his crazy lifestyle. Yeah. Almost. And I mean this in the sense of like if you've ever read The Killing Joke by Alan Moore. Yeah. Where all the Joker is trying to do is get Batman to laugh in that episode or that comic, which if you've never read it, it's a masterpiece. It's mm-hmm. disturbing as all hell. Uh, yeah. But just the fact that he finally gets it, he you sense that just how they're just different sides of a coin in that in an aspect. And this movie really portrayed it. And we hadn't seen a, a remake like that. Obviously, when Heath Ledger took the character over, yeah, completely different direction, yeah, which is impossible to even think of. To right, if you really want to break it down. But I mean, this movie had everything you wanted to see from Batman, and I mean, um, almost to the point where you never really saw him shine too much of his detective skills per se. No, I mean here and there. I mean he definitely yeah, did you use saw, it. You saw glimpses of it here and there, but it wasn't like you know a, a Sherlock Holmes type thing where I'm going to go solve the crime and I'm going to analyze the evidence with the back computer knows there were elements of it though right but you did see everything that makes batman who he is yeah. i mean obviously with the traumatic memories of his parents and just his thirst for vet you know justice and just whichever way he just finds to save gotham and too and just the imagery of this and i thought that was the brilliant thing on the filmmakers part to like you know not get so bogged down with backstory and everything and making it like a real comic book origin movie like you might see today, they kind of like, they kind of kept it grounded and okay, we're going in assuming most people know who Batman is, and if they don't know who he is, they've at least heard of him and they know the origin story. Let's keep it bare bones and just keep it focused on the big guy. Yeah, exactly, and that's what you really need to do. You don't need to go over the top and retelling origins, and everybody knows Batman's. Yeah, it's, it's I mean he's one of the most popular superheroes in the world, and you you can have that argument with anybody. 
but just to see how Burton did this and how he made Gotham into, you know, a, just a very dark, gloomy, but yet artistic place to be at. And just the imagery he used. I mean, everything from when he shot the bat wing up into the moon and you had the, <laughs> you had the overall symbol appear. I mean, yeah. just a little stuff like that. It was just so creative to go that obviously the the movie really turned some eyes onto the character and kind of gave him new life, in my opinion. Yeah. Batman had always been relevant, but it, to that level, hard to say. Right. But at that point, too, you saw the Batman logo everywhere. I mean, mm-hmm. you could not escape. The marketing for this movie really showed that, yeah, you could do a superhero movie. And, I mean, going into the late 80s into the 90s, obviously they did not decide to go further with it per se. They did do Batman Returns with yep. Danny DeVito as a penguin and Michelle Pfeiffer as... Catwoman and yep. definitely was a little different than what we were expecting from the original sequel or yeah. from the original movie. Was, yeah. And for me, I, I did not care for it as much. Right. And I'll be honest about it. But overall, it really kind of set the tone that you could do superhero movies. People will watch, people will go to them. Yeah. That you can definitely capture an audience with it. Because if Batman failed, let's throw it this way let's say it bombed at the box office. Pat, what do you think that would have been lasting effects? I think we wouldn't have comic book movies as we know them today because, yes, while X-Men does get and Spider-Man do get a lot of credit for kind of jump-starting the, the comic book movies as we know them today, I don't think those movies get made if Batman is not as commercially successful as he is now. Granted, yeah, he had some later failings in terms of like overall numbers with movies, Batman and Robin and what and, and what have you, but they were still somewhat successful and they made a fair amount of money. I think if all of the Batman movies hadn't have been as well done or well received and, and made as made as much money as they did, the folks at Fox and Sony wouldn't have even considered for thirty seconds to make an X Men movie or a Spider Man movie. I think they would have gone. Warner Brothers did a Batman movie years ago, and that bombed. Now, this is like hypothetical mm-hmm. alternate universe, you know, where Batman bombs at the box office. You know, if, if you know, Fox's, because I think that one, uh, the X-Men came out before Spider-Man, uh, or roughly after around the same time. But if anyway, if Fox is sitting there in their boardroom with all the big executives going, all right, what are we going to do for our next movie? And someone goes, well, we got, an, we got a director here. He wants to use one of the Marvel properties uh, we have. Uh, they want to do an X-Men movie. And you get one of the executives in the at the round table going, oh, uh, you want to do a, a comic book movie? Why would we do a comic book movie? You had Warner Brothers years ago take Bat- a Batman movie who was, you know, far more recognizable than than X-Men are. And you can argue that till the cows come home, you know, and it bombed. Why would we even attempt to do it? So I think if to the main point, though, if Batman wasn't successful as it was. Warner Brothers, Sony, and, and Fox wouldn't have even attempted the other ones or even considered them. Right. And to clarify, too, X-Men came out in 2000. Spider, okay. Spider-Man, That's what I thought. Stan Raimi won 2002. That's what I thought. But either way, no, you're, you're exactly right. Because if that movie bombed, we would never have had a sequel, let alone, f- I, I want to say four. But you definitely think since Batman has come to the big screen that there had been the four that started and then you had the three more after. And then going into the next version. Right. Unless you want to count Batman versus Superman in that mix, which, I mean, that's up to you if you want to do. Because once that Burton walked away from the film franchise, so did Keaton. I mean, obviously it was taken over by Joel Schumacher. Val Kilmer stepped yeah. in. And yep. it went more to a, a mix of what Burton wanted to do, per se, but it went definitely to the Adam West universe. Mm-hmm. And you took from everything that Burton built up and just really flipped it on its side. and. I mean, Batman Forever was an interesting movie. I liked it. Batman and Robin, not, yeah. not so much. I mean, that movie... I liked it as a kid, although yeah. I was an innocent kid at the time. Right, but if you want to take a look at a movie that when it bombed, look how far it set back the franchise. Yeah. Nobody wanted to go near Batman. So no. Christopher Nolan decided to say, we need to bring Batman back to where he is most relatable. There have even been recent interviews where people have talked to George Clooney about you know, Batman and Ben Affleck and the whole thing, and even Clooney has come out in recent interviews and said, listen, no, even I'll admit that was a bad movie. Yeah, it was. I mean, it just it went so far away from the character because where Burton took his interpretation of the character, I mean, it was almost spot on, but it definitely focused more on the, you know, the traumatic side of Bruce Wayne and just how he was trying to you know live up to his parents' legacy that he wanted, his version of it. That you know that he wanted to make their deaths be more meaningful 
that this is this what's going to cause is unrelenting battle for justice. Right. And there's two things I do want to mention about this movie that one, I'm I'm remiss that we didn't get to see this play out. Uh, Billy D. Williams, of course, did play Harvey Dent. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a little angry. We never got to see Billy D. as Two-Face because that would have been amazing. Yeah. Billy D cool as it cool as it can be uh it also gave my personal alfred like if you ever ask me who's your alfred this is the gentleman i think of over anybody else and that's alfred Goff, or excuse me michael goff yeah like for me that's that's alfred like no no disrespect to anyone who who has played him or will play him you're never going to top michael goff for me no that movie had so many iconic moments in it and just how the burton's version started that obviously batman returns n- was I don't know. I mean, I, I don't like saying letdown, but the, it was definitely not the same magic, in my opinion, that Batman 89 had. It just didn't. And it's nothing against Burton and everybody involved with it. It was just, I think at that point, the success of Batman was just, it was the hype behind it was just maybe overwhelming. And, and for my for my version of it, I guess. Because just looking back, and like I know I keep harping about it, everything about this film was just perfect for the time it was in. And definitely ushered in the start of superhero movies really taking hold at the box office. Now, granted, the 90s, not exactly the best time period for those. No. I mean, you can take your range of any superhero movies that wasn't involved technically with Marvel and DC at the time that was made. And just how much they struggled. Because they did. I don't even want to get into that lineage. But once Batman was kind of... On the back burner, this is what Marvel jumped in, and their properties were finally starting to go into fruition because, I mean, this was nowhere near to where the MCU is now. No. Because everybody had different properties at different studios, and obviously when the X-Men came out and just how that reinvigorated that franchise and really kind of brought eyes back to the superhero world, it was something to see. But without Batman kicking in that door in 89, this doesn't happen. No. And I do have to plug the comic book adaptation with uh, Dennis O'Neill and Jerry Ordway. If you have not read that, if you like your comics, that is one of the best adaptations from film you'll see. Because they literally just how they watched the film and just you know made that into a masterpiece comic is truly astonishing. I, I have to fully plug that because mm-hmm. it was great. But dare I say, Pat, what do you think is the final legacy of Batman 89? I think it's its legacy is that it is one of the seminal moments in comic book movie history where, like, you know, you talk to comic book movie fans that you talk about, oh, what are some of the greatest comic book movies of all time? And, and while the lists may vary, inevitably that movie is going to be in the top five, if not top three, for most fans. I have to agree. Batman 89, as we'll just call it, Definitely is a historic movie for comic book fans, for pop culture fans, for fans of movies in general. I mean, how they brought Batman, because at the time, like we said, comic book movies were not exactly the cool things to be talking about. No, comics by and large weren't the cool things to be talking about like they are today. Yeah, it's a complete change of stat quo. I mean, DC especially, where you see where they had Killing Joke and they had Watchmen come out. And just you could kind of tell those movies were really yeah, a, a testament yeah. of how writing was changing at the time. That to see Batman interpreted in this light, which, I mean, everybody had known the Adam West version for so long, and that, that was Batman. Mm-hmm. To see this version of Michael Keaton play him and how just brilliant he was playing him. And Jack Nicholson balancing off him and just, you know, you seeing how they were interacting and just how the Batman-Joker mythos had just exploded from there is just a true testament of just how great the film is. I mean, if you haven't seen it, DC Universe, go find it at your local uh, movie store, wherever mm-hmm. you go pick up movies, wherever you try yeah. going on streaming. It is definitely worth watching. And I'm going to throw this out there. We're at 30 years from this movie, right? Mm-hmm. Can we get Michael Keaton to come back for a Batman Beyond movie? Oh, my God, yes, please. Let's make it happen, and can we get Tim Burton to direct it? I'm going to throw this out to you, ODPH Society. What is your thoughts on that idea? That needs to happen. Let's get that happening. I don't know how you got to tweet it. I don't know how you got to hashtag it. You want to do it however. Get at them. Let's make this happen. Can we get Tim Burton to direct a Batman Beyond movie with Michael Keaton playing Bruce Wayne? Mm-hmm. And then definitely hit up the hashtag ODPH with your picks for who should be Terry McGinnis. I'm definitely intrigued by it. We gave you a lot to discuss, so definitely interact with us on the social media. Let's talk a little Batman 1989, shall we? We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. 
Hey, this is Brian Wolf from Fair City Fire. You are listening to ODPH, the greatest podcast in Binghamton. Woo! Coming back for another segment on this edition of the ODPH podcast. And we got to talk about some more modern movies now. Mm-hmm. Coming to the theaters next week, Spider-Man Far From Home. Da-na-na, da-na-na. This is going to be a bookend to the Marvel MCU that we know. Yep. The official end of the Infinity Phase. Yep. And Kevin Feige has said that himself, that this will be the bookend of the Infinity Saga. So th- what we're going to do for this segment is just sell you on why you should see this movie. Not that you weren't excited before, but let's break it down. Pad, why should our listeners go see this movie? I think if, well, let's be honest, if you're already invested in this point that you've seen all most or some of the Marvel movies. I realize there's some people who haven't seen everything or they've only seen stuff recently or they may have missed a couple here and there, but you're invested at this point. You got to see how, you know, it's like reading the Harry Potter series or reading Lord of the Rings or the Chronicles of Narnia. You're not going to read the first six Harry Potter books and then just stop. You're not going to read the first two, three, if you want to count the Hobbit, Lord of the Lord of the Rings books, and then just stop. You're, you know, you're not going to stop before the last Chronicles of Narnia book. You got, you got to read the end. You got to find out how you know how that ends. Um, I think the other reason you should see it is, is that to me, and kind of what I'm guessing with this, is that this is going to be kind of a bridge between the sagas. Where yes, it will be closing off everything that happened in the previous twenty whatever movies leading up to this point, but it'll start to also kind of plant some seeds and maybe start building some bridges for stuff coming down the road. This movie has got a lot riding on it because with Avengers Endgame being the movie, the Uh definitive MCU movie, and especially ironic that it's coming back out right before Spider-Man Far From Home. And if I'm not mistaken, if you go... uh Far from home, we'll have something involving like an opening scene getting added into the movie or something like that. It's it, it's going to have something connected to the re-release for Endgame with it. Yeah, which is very interesting. I I think for Marvel to do, especially because of the date when Endgame comes back out to theaters, uh-huh. and then let alone Spider-Man: Far From Home comes out July second. Yeah. This, um, for us here in the United yep. States. So this is where it, I think it's just an interesting play by Marvel that they're really trying to really send it home for the MCU in this version that we know of. Mm-hmm. And obviously, Far From Home has looked great that we've seen thus yeah. far. The trailer has looked, trailers, should I say, has looked really, really good. Yeah. Jake Gyllenhaal as Mysterio. There's a lot of questions about what his true nature is in this movie. He's a villain. Well, he is a villain, and everybody knows. If you've read Spider-Man, you know Mysterio is a villain. You know that he's a villain. There's also a great post going around on Reddit, and it might have made its way to Facebook yet. I'm not sure, but it's like, you know, the po- the post uh, title had, you know, is is Jake Gyllenhaal a, a villain in Spider-Man Far From Home? And then it's a picture of just him, him in his costume, and then, like, every other A-list celebrity that's ever been in a Marvel movie, they're all villains. Yeah, and it makes complete sense. And obviously, if you know the history of the character, this is going to play into it. Mm-hmm. And and just to kind of see where they're going, because obviously Spider-Man Far From Home, we had Homecoming yep. last time. Yep. No idea what they're going to do for the third movie, but I guarantee you they're going to do a third one. Mm-hmm. So to see where they go with this is going to be interesting. But to see Peter Parker away from New York and now traveling overseas with his class. Yep. And he gets brought into a Nick Fury-led mission. Well, I wouldn't say he gets brought into it. He kind of gets dragged into it because he wants, from what we've seen in the commercials and the trails, he wants no part of this. And you can fully understand it. Obviously, yeah. he's coming off the events of Avengers Endgame yeah, where th- Tony Stark died. Yeah, and I can't remember if it's like a TV spot or one of the trailers where they're, they're talking about what they got to do. And he goes, well, what about Thor? He's off world. What about Captain Marvel? Not available. Oh, I can't do this. You know, bleep, please, you've been to space. Exactly. So he has definitely raised his stock in front of the MCU uh, common folks, should I say? Yeah. The, the yeah. people of the MCU. Yeah. Because he is now fully recognizable as Spider-Man in the MCU by, you know, people on the street. Oh, and, yeah. And however you want to find it. So obviously he is now officially on Nick Fury's radar. Right. And my theory about this is I don't think it's Nick Fury. Okay. That's 
dragging him in this mission, but I think he definitely raised his stock enough that they tracked him down to figure out who he is. See, for me, with Nick Fury in this movie, because this is seemingly something that like Nick Fury could realistically call somebody else and get somebody else to handle all this. Like mm-hmm. he he could he could get uh, Scarlet Witch or, or somebody else to handle this. But for me, with Tony being gone, and it seems like from the trailer that Tony being gone is going to be kind of one of the central themes or messages of this movie. This is going to be Fury's way of kind of measuring using a measuring stick on Peter and saying, okay, I realize Stark had a lot of faith in you and he had a lot. He he believed in you a lot, but like Stark had also had a soft spot for you. He, you were the son he never had. I got to measure you up to my standards and see if you hold up because Stark ain't coming through that door anytime soon. You know, he's not going to, he's not going to come running in like a hero at the last minute. He ain't coming. So we need people to, you know, cap is, is old man cap. Now, you know, uh, Steve Rogers ain't going to come running through that door either. We need some. We need some people to step up for this planet and for the Earth Earth defense. I got to measure you up and see what you're up to and whether you can hold hold it down or not. Right. Because other than that, I mean, we don't really know too much about this movie. No, they've really held the plot under wraps, so to speak. Which I which I applaud. Yeah. Which it's for me, it's one of those good marks of a movie where if you walk, if you see kind of like the from the first trailer to the final trailer, if you're realistically seeing like the same handful of scenes, they're not showing you much. They're keeping it kind of secret. They're not revealing too much, which is always a good spot. But if but if you go uh, and you see like three trailers and all of them are different scenes, they're like, all right, they're basically showing you the whole movie. Right. And they definitely have kept this well under wraps. The only thing that you can kind of speculate is who Mysterio is, quote unquote, fighting. If it's Hydro uh-huh. Man and Molten Man. Yeah. And if you know the Spider-Man mythos, you know who those characters are. Uh-huh. You don't really know if that's them or not. But you do know that they have established that Mysterio is part of this team that's working together to stop this threat. They have dropped the name Multiverse in the Mm -hmm. trailers, which I know a lot of people are jumping in on. And I have to be one that says pump your brakes. I am thinking that that is a red herring amongst many levels. Pad? It might be. I mean, from the explanation that Fury gives in the one scene that's been posted where he says because of the snap release so much gamma radiation, it tore a hole in the fabric of space and time. I, I realize I'm no astrophysicist, whatever assist, but in my simple, you know, education head with science, it makes sense that there would be a like I've already be, like I already believe in the whole multiverse thing. Like it already makes sense for Marvel, like they do in the comics. Mm-hmm. DC does it. It makes sense. It would only make sense for them to bring it in for the movies. Now, would they have to dip into it and and kind of rehash? Oh, hey, we're bringing in somebody from this universe from that universe. No, but it would make sense to inter- introduce it. So that down the road, if you want to do something, it's there. It's an interesting thing if they want to bring it into. I just don't buy it. For me, I'm just, I think it's too much to play up into the emotions of every fan out there that is thinking, okay, this is how they're going to introduce the X-Men. This is how they're going to do the Fantastic Four. And I'm like, okay, no, yeah, no, it's not. No, it's not. That's not going to happen. It, I know. I fully agree with you. I don't think it's going to happen at no. all. I think it's just a nice little tease to the fans to keep them on their toes and guessing. If it does anything and they do anything with that, I would like to see, and I realize it'll never happen. This is like fan moment for me. I would like to see him do something with uh, Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield. Like that would, it, it might not ever happen, but I would love to see it. If they pull that off, it'd be great to see. It'd be amazing. Yeah. No pun intended. But it would definitely be something that would be a nice fan service so you think about it like for me one of the great you know the two greatest moments in cinema history are one you know avengers assemble and then the charge in, in gondor and return of the king like seeing toby Maguire, andrew garfield and tom holland like do some sort of spider-man flip through the air and all land there getting ready to fight whoever it is they're fighting man that push its way into that top two it'd be an interesting moment i would have to say like i I don't know exactly how I'd react to it, to be honest with you, because if you're tying in universes that aren't necessarily in the MCU, right? I don't know. Like, I, I don't know how I'd, I'd react to it. I honestly don't, because I'm not a fan of the Andrew Garfield Spider Man's. I've never, I've never been shamed to First say that. One was okay. I, not, wasn't great, but it was okay. Not for me. I was like both of them. I was like, not did do nothing for me. Loved the Sam Raimi universe. Yeah. Hated, hated Spider Man Three. Yeah. Absolutely hate yeah. that movie. Yeah. So if they want to tie in little stuff here and there, okay. I, and, you know, it'd be a cool little thing to see them up here. I just don't know if it's like a long term or like how, so if how we, they would. If we introduce multiverse and we bring in anyone from those other two Spider-Man franchises, can we get J.K. Simmons' J. Jonah Jameson back? Oh, I'm, I'm completely okay with like, that. Can we, can we make that happen? 
I'm okay with that. I mean, I just think that this would be something they would open the door with if they really want to go to the alternate timelines. Right. Because is this how they bring Miles Morales into this yeah. MCU? Is yeah. this how they bring yeah. Ghost Spider Gwen Stacy into the universe? I'll say because people often bring up, you know, Sam Jackson kind of reshaped the way they portray Nick Fury in the comics. You can say the same for J.K. Simmons and J. Jonah Jameson. Oh, absolutely. Like even going to the Spider-Man PS4 video game, while you don't see Jameson, you hear him in podcast form. And he absolutely sounds like J.K. Simmons. Like, that's been the case for a number of years since those movies came out. It's an interesting thing if they really want to go that route and do the multiverse. And, and you really open a lot of doors no matter which way you want to go. Yeah. Because then you I think, okay, when they do the X-Men movies, are they going to try doing that and, and bring uh, those alternate timelines? Because uh, you know that would get super messy. Yeah. I mean, and I think the response to that would be well they did just pull dark phoenix from like 44 percent of the theaters it was in over the weekend yeah so it's just i don't know like i said if it happens on screen i'll probably be like okay this might be an interesting moment depending on what they do with it unless they say andrew garfield was ben riley the spider <laughs> clone and scarlet spider then i'd be like okay yeah i'm all right with that let let it go but overall though pad final thoughts going into the movie i'm real excited for it i mean i'm interested to see how they bookend like i said the infinity saga i'm excited to see where they go with it and the seeds and bridges they plant and build i'm also if the tra- if that classic spider-man theme that they keep playing in the trailer is in that movie my god i'm ready for however many hours of that i am super excited about this movie that i think this is going to be the steal of summer and i think this is coming in under the shadow of avengers endgame mm-hmm. obviously but this is going to be the bookend to the MCU as we know it. And obviously going into the next phase where you have Shang-Chi, you have the Eternals, uh-huh. you have Black Panther 2, Doctor Scarlet Strange Witch. 2, and um, Black Widow First as the movies. Black Widow, Black Widow, yeah. And then the Disney Plus shows as you're alluding to with uh, Scarlet Witch and uh-huh. Vision, uh, Falcon and, and uh, Winter, Winter Soldier, Soldier, and Loki and, and Hawkeye is yep. coming, and, yep. and just whatever's going to happen there. This is a very interesting time to be into the MCU and just where the future is going to go is very unpredictable. But they have done enough to establish Spider-Man as one of the major players. And like I said, for the people that are involved in the MCU, like the universe itself, uh-huh, uh-huh. From, you know, the common people to his peers that are fellow superheroes to now everybody that's in outer space because he's definitely made his name exposed to yeah. scrolls when they decide yep. to do that, if they're going to do something with like that. He has now risen in stock as Spider-Man into one of the big players in the MCU. And if he's going to be where the franchise of Marvel and the MCU goes and starts leaning on heavy, it's definitely something the character can go moving forward. Because obviously he's one of the biggest selling comics heroes in the universe. <laughs> Period. Yeah. So to see that he's going to be the major focus point as we think going with the MCU moving forward Obviously, a rightful place for him, and I cannot wait to see what happens with this movie. I am ducking any kind of spoilers yeah. which way possible. Yeah. yeah. And if this sets up for a possible Sinister Six for a third movie. We know Sony's been wanting to do that for, you know, like a decade. I know, and I've also heard they said they're willing to play ball about Venom. Yeah, I saw that too. There's a lot of different ways they could go with Spider-Man 3, mm-hmm. so they have to get there first, but Far From Home looks like a home run waiting to happen. We'll be there open tonight. We'll definitely be reviewing it next week. But hit us up on that hashtag, hashtag ODPH. What's your expectations going into Spider-Man Far From Home? Are you excited to see it? Do you want to see it? Do you not? Hit us up. Let us know why. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. The ODPH is proud sponsors of Robocon 2019, happening September 28th and 29th. Don't miss out on Binghamton, New York's biggest sci-fi, fantasy, and gaming convention of the year. For badge details and more info, check out robercon.org. Coming back for the final segment on this edition of the ODPH Podcast. Pad, what you got for those one-shots? I've oh, got a couple of things. Uh, there was a mobile game released uh, over the weekend that was uh, hi- highly anticipated. Uh, Harry Potter Wizards Unite. Now, this is from the f- same folks, uh, Niantic, who work on the Pokemon Go video game. Uh, it's much in the same style as Pokemon Go. It's you know one of those augmented reality. you got to walk around to interact with stuff and play. Kind of a little different from Pokemon Go, whereas with Pokemon Go, you got to capture stuff. This one, you're kind of helped trying to make the secrecy of wizards that something of foul is going on that you you know you got to try and, and take care of these incidents that are happening to kind of help keep the secrecy or otherwise you know 
us non-magical people will find out about witches and wizards. A lot of fun if you're a Harry Potter fan, so I highly recommend you dig into it. Other one I got for you is a recommendation. Now, of course, one of the games I'm most anticipating for this year is Borderlands 3. Mm. That one from the Gearbox uh, software folks, awesome loot shooter, you know, four-player co-op, one of the most fun games you know, fun series of all time. Uh, I'm recommending for you uh, now, if you're a PlayStation plus subscriber, you can get for the month, which is a couple more days as we record, you can get borderlands, the handsome Jack collection for free. Mm-hmm. Now that is uh, a game, a re- HD remaster of both borderlands two and Borderlands, the pre-sequel, with all of the DLC included. Interesting. So I picked it up a couple of months ago. I had a a 10% coupon from uh, GameStop for my birthday, and I ended up picking up for real cheap. Uh, It's great. I've been playing it for months, and I still have yet. I've been playing through Borderlands 2. I've yet to get to the pre-sequel just because there's so much DLC and there's so much to do with it. But the other awesome thing they did is they released a free DLC for Borderlands 2 that is kind of like a setup and the lead into Borderlands 3. So if you're you're a fan of the Borderlands games, you played them before, you're excited for Borderlands 3, you know, pick up a copy of this. If if you have PlayStation Plus, you can get it on there for free. If you have Xbox Game Pass, it's available on their their service. Pick it up, get the DLC. It's a lot of fun. Can't wait for that. That's going to be some exciting stuff. Uh-huh. Speaking of exciting stuff, uh-huh. Pad, if you're looking at the calendar. Yes. We are 100 days away or less than now? I want to say it's 99 now. Till when? Uh, New York Comic Con. Yeah, so we have definitely have a shout-out read popping everybody down there. Mm-hmm. Less than 100 days away, so we are getting ready to go down there and do some things down there as you see us walking around. Definitely stop and say hey. But one of the big things that I think is going to get mentioned down there, because okay. we did tease this last week. Sure. It was officially announced after. Definitely has been a little polarizing, depending on what side of the fence you're sticking on. Mm-hmm. J.J. Abrams right. has been announced that he and his son, Henry, are going to be teaming with Sarah Pacelli from uh, Spider-Man Comics fame mm-hmm. to do a five-issue limited series yep. Spider-Man comic. Now, this this is the announcement, of course, that you know Marvel had been doing last week where you know the one, the one day it showed up and it was a webbed uh, Spider-Web 4. And everyone's like, oh, Spider-Man 4, Spider-Man 4. And then it changed to 3, 2, 1. So it was you know the old film reel countdown. Uh, and they revealed that, no, yeah, J.J. Abrams and his son are going to be doing a limited run Spider-Man comic series, which is interesting to say the least. Get ready with those lens flares. Yeah, this is definitely going to be exciting to see. I'm I'm amped up for it because yeah. it, it's something different. And I know everybody was jumping in to say, oh, they're going to do Spider-Man 4 and bring the Raimi-verse back. I never really thought that. I was like, why? Yeah. No, I, I mean, I thought it, but it wasn't until after I saw an article about it. I'm like, eh, that'd be interesting. Yeah, like I said, uh, we had a poll going on our Facebook page, and, and I know I was talking to a couple of people on social media about it. I was figuring, no, if anything, they were going to add Spider-Man to the Fantastic Four, maybe, and do a team book there. Or right. dare I say, if they were going to do the reboot, maybe, just maybe, because I know there's been some... You know, rumblings about what how they're going to bring the Fantastic Four and X Men to the MCU. Yep. That maybe they're going to add Spider Man there, and that would be an ultimate curveball, even though he's teamed up with them in the past. And but this one, I I'm definitely excited to see. I don't I don't really know what to expect, other than I mean, J.J. Abrams can do no wrong in my eyes. So yeah, he's, he writes great stories. Yeah. So to see where he goes with this and the direction of the book. I'm excited to see it. Uh, I mean, it's going to be five issues, so whatever this takes place is going to yeah. be a fun read. Yeah. And like I said, when we get down to Comic-Con, I think we'll probably hear a little bit more about it as it's yeah, coming out. Could be. So definitely excited to hear about this when it comes. So stay tuned for that. And to end the show, uh, at least for me, I'm on a somber note. Uh, Rick Remender tweeted out that Deadly Class is officially done. It's not going to be renewed for another network. Uh, I am officially bummed out about this. Yeah. So... Uh, Deadly Class, you know how much I love the show. We definitely covered it a lot on the show here. And if you want to get into it, definitely, if you get the chance to stream it, however you stream it, pick up the first season when it's available. It's worth watching if you really want to see a faithful adaptation to the comic. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I definitely applaud everybody involved with the show. And if you really want to catch up on the stories after season one, after you get hooked on the TV show, Get to your local comic book shop. Go pick up some trades. Go pick up some issues. The Deadly Class is done by Image Comics. You can definitely go into your comic shop and go pick up the story of Marcus and company. And it's going to be something to tie it over. Hopefully, maybe there will be like an 11th hour or somebody will pick them up. But as of right now, they're saying it's over and done with. So, you know, thank you for the memories, Deadly Class. And we'll have to see what happens down the road. 
because that's all I got for this week. So for Padawan J. Thank you, thank you. I'm your host, Ken M. Thank you, as always, for listening to the Ocho Duro Parlay Hour podcast. We'll see you next time. Thank you.